Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to the show, everyone. We're here to drop in with our guest, Katie Burke, to talk about seeing the world through the eyes of children, specifically the world of San Francisco. It's the subject of her new book entitled Urban Playground, What Kids Say About Living in San Francisco. It's to be published next month by Spark Press. So exciting. It's like remembering what it's like to swim in a public swimming pool all over again. The book is available on the Spark Press website, and you can visit Katie on her website, katieburkeauthor.com. Welcome, Katie Burke. Welcome to Dropping In. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be with you, and I'm going to give people a little flavor of your book and then introduce you, then we'll get do a deep dive right into our conversation. Um, you write um, about the book, Children Want to Be Seen and Heard. When we listen, kids in urban centers tell us a lot, like what is fun, boring, meaningful, and scary about the cities they live in. Jump into the urban playground to find out what kids think about their cities. And I just thought, you know, a lot has changed since the days of children should be seen and not heard, um, that they were at one point considered kind of performance accessories, but not developing their own views and opinions necessarily. And you've shined a light on that, um, that individuality and the importance of validating kids' opinions by quoting them directly in your book. Um, and I, I also, when I was reading the book, which I took great pleasure in, I noticed that the vision of a child, it's fundamentally different and much more immediate than that of an adult. If this were an adult guide to living in San Francisco, all we'd hear about is where to eat and drink, um, maybe where to get a good book. But through kids' eyes, we get to learn about where to play. And it's an urban playground, literally the land on which to play. Play is engagement, right? It's interactive and physical, and it brings us outside, outside of ourselves and outside into the outdoors. It's a connection. And what it's not is sitting in a restaurant while four family members at a table focus on their personal devices. I was struck by the amount of value on family contact that the children um, gave in their answers Um, as well as always primarily focusing on where to play. Play is essential for us as sleep, says Stuart Brown, founder of the National Institute for Play. And that's a place I want to go. Play engages us um, at a deeply personal level, whatever we're involved in, and the engagement itself is pleasurable and fun, more important than the outcome. So one has a sense of being lost outside of time, not fully involved with the anxiety or self-concerns, while being actively involved in play. And he says this broad definition applies to both kids and adults. So it's worthwhile for adults, parents, and kids to read Urban Playground. He goes on to say that playfulness keeps us nimble. We make better decisions, we're more flexible, we take more risks, because there's less to lose. 
there's nothing to lose, really. Play becomes a competitive advantage. The benefits include self-mastery, a boost to our immune system, empathy, and a sense of belonging. So it also helps with our physiology. Even being outdoors for 10 minutes can help set uh, our circadian rhythms, as we know. We need sunlight. We need nature. And emotionally, we need novelty and a sense of wonder. So seeing through the eyes of a child in this book is so healthy, whether we're a kid, a parent, uh, or an adult without kids, it's worth it to get motivated from the perspectives in Katie Burke's book, Urban Playground. I called this episode, I Already Am, because that was the response to the question that is always posed to kids, who or what do you want to be when you grow up? I, when I arrived in America at age one and a half, I had a f- full-blown personality. And you see that in the youngest infants. Monia Baker, a San Francisco science editor, says that urban playground shows that one does not need to come of age to have a strong personality. Most of the children interviewed for urban playground had emerged from their preschool years, what Erickson called the initiative phase, where the most important need is exploration. So that fully explains why children need to assert themselves and control and power over their environment to develop a sense of purpose. This initiative is what goes on when kids go out and play. They're exploring. They're getting out and about. They're becoming viable. There may be more mobility and diversity for urban kids, and certainly the ones in San Francisco that Katie Burke interviewed are quite sophisticated. Like my godson in Zurich, he and his brother, they take public transportation all throughout the city. They hop a bus to go to the skate park, and then they go home, they visit their friends. Now they're age 10 and 13. The skate park is where they see everyone play, play soccer, skateboard, and then moms can join in whenever they can visit with them on their butt from the bus or the tram. And this part of interconnection will always be a part of these kids' memories. Um, and I must note that Zurich is notoriously safe for kids. Sometimes we don't share that level of safety in, in America. Um, in an interesting book called The Emotional Infrastructure of Places, Peter Kajiyama, the city love guy, talks about the foundation that supports our sentimental, psychological, and spiritual life. And kids are very open about this. Their experience is based on fun, as Katie Burke said. It's their likes, their dislikes, their connections to places. They're less concerned with the rational convenience of the nearest grocery store. So this book explores how we create emotional attachments and connections to the places we live and as a result to each other. We're, what causes us to love where we live? It doesn't have to do with survival, but with quality of life issues. Where's the place that has the most interesting mural? The shop that has a garden like Tombolo, the independently owned bookstore here in St. Petersburg. Or where are the places that have the most charm and novelty, or even the negative uh, quality of life issues that we'd rather forget, the background music that dogs us wherever we go, the mysterious sensor devices in public bathroom sinks. I'll give you just one excerpt from Urban Playground, and then we'll get to talk with the author, Katie Burke. This is um, Leah, age nine. What was her favorite place 
um, to go. She said, to swim in the newly renovated pool at Balboa Park, her dog Marlo loves to run and fetch at the beach. And it's these simple pleasures that children talk about unabashedly. While we adults might think of something that's supposedly more sophisticated, like a neighborhood wine bar or the farmer's market. But if we think about the, we, if we don't discount the emotional content of play in favor of more serious issues, we come back to ourselves, our own emotional memories. I remember swimming in a beautiful public swimming pool when we were transferred for a year to Basel, Switzerland, and someone asked me uh, later what I loved most about the city. I found myself talking about the museums. There are 30 of them, so maybe that's natural. The Beiler Foundation is a, a favorite, but I neglected to even really think about that beautiful public swimming pool that Leah talked about. And really, that was the thing that broke, brought my senses most alive in a physical way and in a play way. So I think that Urban Playground is a great restorative for us to go back to thinking about the great things that kids connect with and that we've maybe forgotten to connect with. Um, Sarah talks about age nine, talks about going out to the park or watching a family movie on Friday and having a dinner and chat. I mean, I'm not sure that families, parents really recognize the significance of communication within the family. And Sarah said that they probably don't know that the loss of their old dog hurts me way more than it hurts them. And I love this, that her, she revealed her pain to Katie Burke, even though um, you know, she didn't necessarily think that her parents really understood this. Um, and Katie comes back at the end of each one of these chapter interviews and points out um, things like for Sarah and her little brother. In San Francisco, she says, siblings do sleep sometimes in the same room. San Francisco is only seven miles square and holds more than 884,000 people. Many people share bedrooms. Many kids share bedrooms. And San Franciscans don't always know their neighbor. Somebody can think they're being nice by feeding your lost pet, like sadly they did with the family dog, Shadow but they can't ask you whether the food they're giving them is safe. And I feel like this is a real contribution to empathy. Katie Burke talks about being childless herself by choice, a topic we've talked about on Dropping In. Um, and she points out that it's, she's not judgmental about parents because it's an impossible job. The author says that she, I do think that as a doting aunt to eight children and a writer who regularly interviews children, I can say that adults would do best by their children in their lives if they listened more and considered their children wise. Like all of us, children just want to love and be loved, and they're better at showing this than adults. I think this was, this was a quote that came from our um, wonderful publicist, Books Forward, Book Forward, and it's such a great answer, I think, from uh, the author Katie Burke, that children should be considered wise. I think a lot about the inner place and the outer place in, in her book, San Francisco, that Katie addresses tr- too. And to give you a, a kind of a bio of Katie, she's practiced family law in San Francisco for 14 years. That's her day job. She's a compassionate and zealous advocate operating at a high level to preserve her clients' dignities. And she's a champion for children and families. Katie has practiced in large and small family law firms as well as in solo practice. 
Her work as a writer and interest in children's development took her to Africa to teach creative nonfiction writing to children in Kenya and teens in South Africa. After writing and teaching full-time for two years, she returned to the San Francisco Bay Area to continue practicing family law. She holds a degree in psychology from Fairfield University in Connecticut. Her Master of Counseling degree is from Arizona State University. She's been moved to support families in an advocacy role um, by when she attended University of San Francisco School of Law. After graduate school, she's a member of the Bar um, and other Bay Area professional organizations, regularly contributing to the Bar, uh, San Francisco Bar Association's quarterly journal, and the super cute and fun-sounding uh, article she writes, Noe Kids, a monthly column for the Noe Valley Voice, in which she features Noe Valley children. From 2015 to 2017, Katie Burke traveled to New Orleans to volunteer with Louisiana Civil Justice, assisting self-represented families to family law cases. So, Katie Burke, I've I've tried to I've tried to paint a broad brush here, um, but I think one of the the really amazing things that you've accomplished with this book is that you've validated children's voices. Um, it, far from being dismissive, um, you know, which is a really horrible thing to do when you're trying to create strong individuals, um, you know, kids often feel patronized and how often do we take their thoughts and feelings seriously? You are publishing their answers. You've empowered children and that's too rarely done. In one month when the book comes out, children will see other qu- children being quoted in your book and telling their stories. And I wanted to hear from you what you think is so important, why it's important for children to develop their stories, and how to go about accessing children's stories. You've become something of an expert in this. Yes, thank you. So I think I'd start by saying, um, just sharing my experience of interviewing kids. Before this was a book about kids in San Francisco, the original idea was that it would be kids in cities around the U.S. So I had spoken to 60-something kids in cities around the U.S., mostly by FaceTime, before um, my publisher reached out to me and said, we really should start in San Francisco because you've been here over 20 years and all of that. So then I added on, you know, 50 more interviews, and every almost every single child I interviewed got very wide-eyed when they when I talked to them about what this project was, and they said, I'm going to be in a book? And they're just so excited about that idea that, you know, some of them say, I'm going to be famous, you know, and that someone's listening to them and wants to read what they say. And, you know, I think just thinking back to when I was a kid, it's like books are everything. And the idea that they might be in a book, it's like they're a rock star or something. And Mm -hmm. because of that, I've been really devoted to making sure I publish every child's story. So even the ones who aren't in San Francisco are up on my website because I don't want any child to feel like, you know, that writer came and talked to me and I never got to see my interview. She didn't pick me or, you know, whatever, because they just get so excited about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a world you've opened a gate. Um, you've opened a door into a world that they don't have access to or that you don't get access to until you're an adult. And I think this is, uh, it's going to be so exciting to see the reaction 
of uh, kids and their peers when they see themselves in print. This is something you've facilitated. And I think it's so great that you've been inclusive of all the kids that you interviewed. How do parents access better their kids' stories? We have a few minutes left before the break, but you know, what do you tell parents about you know, how to get to the heart of what's going on with their kids? I think it's really about tuning in, um, in the title of your podcast, Dropping In. You know, it's really about getting present, getting wide-eyed with them, and and getting into their worlds. I mean, what I found most fascinating is that I had 10 different themes, and kids could be questioned on any one of these 10 themes, and I asked them questions about San Francisco through the lens of their given theme. And often parents would ask me in advance, which topic are they going to get? And the topics are family, favorite foods, heroes, favorite holiday, pets, school, sports, talents, vacation, or work. And Mm -hmm. I never would tell the parents because I wanted to have just off-the-cuff, unprepared, unrehearsed kids. And what was amazing to me is that no matter what the topic that these kids were surprised with, it's as though they had been thinking about it for years. They have a million things to say on every topic. And usually it was, you know, not even a beat before between my asking the question and they're coming out with this, you know, monologue of all the things they've wanted to say. So for parents, I would just say, and, you know, I am very careful because I am childless by choice. And I, you know, I think parents by and large do a wonderful job. But I think in the day to day, some of the really intimate moments of dropping in with kids can get can get dropped. And um, one experience I had repeatedly just gonna, wait, was whoop, that... Oh, 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 wait, Katie. Um, I'm just going to, you know, we've got to stop for a break here to enable the, the show to go on. But I want to come back with the idea of being wide-eyed and present with kids, hearing stories they've had inside themselves for years. You won't want to miss this with, with Katie Burke. We'll take a short break now. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out. Finding the inner story and what you want to say. Developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone. 
and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're dropping in today with Katie Burke, author of The Urban Playground. And we've been talking about um, accessing children's uh, stories, their innermost thoughts. And sometimes it's easier to do that somehow as a stranger, um, a a person who um, Katie developed a set of topics that she would ask the kids, um, who's in your family? What are your favorite foods? Um, who is your hero? I think that's a very revealing one. Um, what's your favorite holiday? And one of the kids in, in the book, Urban Playground, um, went on to develop his own um, holiday, which I just thought was so imaginative. Um, it was called Skillzot. It's a two-night holiday where people do not have school the day between the two nights, and they can do whatever they want. And then on the two nights of Skillzot, Family members and friends gather around a fire in the middle of the street. And then the child, whose name was Courage, um, Courage's group would meet outside his grandparents' house. Um, everyone would celebrate skills art, and everyone goes around the circle one by one, and each person shows off one special skill over the fire. But, for example, Courage says they would do a cartwheel in the air over the fire or a backflip. They repeat this 10 times, but if they didn't have 10 skills or even one, that's no problem. It's skippable, Scourge says, because even those who feel short on talent can skip school for skills. I mean, I think this is a great holiday. Um, He said there'd be really crazy music and everybody would have dinner at 9 p.m. That's wildly, I'm sure, exotic for a kid. There'd be no clapping, no competition, but lots of foam pads to protect people who fall and a bridge over the fire so no one would get burned. I think this is so telling this like the idea of removing competition but showing talent i mean i think this is this sounds like heaven so katie burke you've used the the lever the idea of these topics and organized your book your interviews around these topics um were you surprised by some of the answers you got and um you know how so what 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 was your response to the answers you you got from these wonderful kids well it was just Delightful the way, I mean, that excerpt you read is a perfect example of a child never running short on ideas, and he required no encouragement. I mean, he just went and went, and that was such a detailed holiday that he invented, and that's exactly what I'm talking about, where it's like you would think he'd been thinking about it for years, and maybe he has, but every kid had something like that, or many somethings like that, where I was just sitting there listening and thinking, how did you know I was going to ask you this question? Because they just 
Right. You know, there for the most part, there was no reservation. They just had so much to say. So I would say to the extent that anything surprised me, I mean, I have many kids in my life, so I can't exactly say it's a surprise, but because I was asking such targeted questions, whereas usually if I'm with my nieces and nephews or a mentee or, you know, some kids of my friends or whoever, it's not like I'm coming over with prepared questions. So it was sort of surprising that no matter what I asked, they just, you know, it's like these words just tumbled out of their mouths as if they've been waiting to say it. Exactly. And, you know, those, those of us that are close to kids, we feel like we're supposed to know these answers, right? We're supposed to know what their favorite foods are. And, you know, but maybe we don't check in often enough to kind of find out, I mean, things evolve, people change, kids change too. Their ideas are constantly changing. They're playing for heaven's sake. So they're getting a lot of creative juices um, going all the time. And they're, you know, connected with other kids that way too. I wondered if, um, you know, I wondered, you know, San Francisco has such a smorgasbord of offerings in terms of physical geographic beauty and ethnic diversity. So these kids are also, they're getting into parks, the, you know, the bay itself, the Golden Gate Bridge. Many of them talked about walking across the bridge with their families. Um, and, and this incredibly diverse um, food and language accessibility, being able to learn uh, Mandarin is not uncommon. So I wondered if you felt as though San Francisco was just, you know, a, more wealthy um, in that way. I mean, you, you did allude to the fact that also it's cost an enormous amount of money to live in San, San Francisco. And one of your interviewees talked casually about, you know, his weekend place where he'd go with his dad's or, you know, it took the family dog up to Sonoma. Um, and in your, you know, anal- you know, your analysis at the end of that chapter, you said, you know, many people in San Francisco have second homes in Sonoma. You know, it's a real eye opener to those of us that live in, I guess, more um, limited um, kinds of spaces. Um, Do you think that kids in San Francisco are aware of the wealth that's around them? And are they aware that, you know, this is kind of a special place? Or how did you read that? I think I think it varies. I mean, in the age range that I interviewed, which was five to nine, for the most part, I didn't really sense that if the kids did have privilege, that they thought it was anything unusual. Um, and even, you know, I spoke to some kids who don't have privilege, and I didn't necessarily get from them that they were aware, you know, whether they were or not, it, it didn't necessarily come through in my conversations with them. But I think... You know, there are a couple different types of wealth that you referred to. One is just the cultural wealth and riches and the no end of exciting things to do. And that was really true across the board in my interviews, whether the child was from privilege or not. Um, And that was really the main point of interviewing kids in urban centers was because there is so much of that sort of wealth of the, you know, rich cultural experience. But the other type um, of material wealth I don't think that kids were, by and large, super aware that there was another way, because, of course, if they're privileged, they're going to other places where they are enjoying the privilege of those places. And if they're not, then they're just not, and this is the experience they know. But, um, you know, it was interesting, as I talked to people about my book, 
a lot of people joked with me, are there even 50 kids in San Francisco? Because that's, as you know, the number of kids featured in the book, because there are, you know, there, there's this quote that goes around San Francisco all the time, there are more dogs than kids in San Francisco. And I think it might actually be true. Um, because it's just, you know, I think it's an expensive place to live. It can be a really challenging place to live for reasons aside from cost. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think for the kids, it just is their experience. I mean, that's, you know, in the age range I was talking to, I think if I probably went up even a couple years, I'd see a very different level of insight about if they had privilege or not and their level of awareness of that. Right. I mean, I, I have a, a, a wonderful sister-in-law who lives in Washington, D.C., and um, that's also, an, you know, intellectually wealthy um, and culturally wealthy, cult- culturally rich area. And when she was raising her kids, she, made, you know, they volunteered at soup kitchens and they, they did things at holidays to kind of bring an awareness that, like, this, not everybody's living in a big Victorian home with a wraparound porch and a nice yard for two dogs. And, you know, we've got to kind of give back. And, you know, she herself goes to um, Haiti and, and volunteers um, medically there. Um, and, and you also have done, I think, some really, really interesting work um, in Kenya, teaching nonfiction, creative writing, and in South Africa, so I think you you have extended beyond this this boundary. And um, I wondered if you could um, t- talk about that experience and how it maybe informed this um, experience of wanting to reach out to children, because children, after all, are another unheard voice, right? And, and a population that is maybe underserved in certain ways and um, you know, there's this this diversity, but you've brought you've brought a um, a microphone to their voice and a book to their voice, which is just going to be the most exciting thing when it comes out. Um, do you feel that this is a connection for you as well? Yes, I mean, when I grew up, I grew up in Phoenix, and it really comes from my dad. This this service mentality. Um, we used to buy Christmas presents for. Um, kids in need in Phoenix, and I remember driving around with my dad just before Christmas um, and the years that we did it, driving to drop off at the family's homes that we had selected to buy gifts for, and my dad is always doing, you know, missions of service, trips of service, um, donating money and resources and all kinds of things, so I really just grew up with that being natural, and it's always been important to me, and when I started going to Kenya, it was through Glide Memorial, which is a huge institution in San Francisco. Um, Yeah, and and so that was my first experience going to Kenya, and then later went to South Africa with a program called Teach with Africa that's also um, based in San Francisco. And, um, And I knew right away, you know, I wanted to work with kids. That's something that has always, always been important to me. Even when I was a child, I just knew that somehow I'd want to work with kids. And it is interesting. I mean, it, it, going to Kenya, for example, I mean, we were working in the slums and seeing kids there. And, you know, it's the same. It is the same around the world. It, 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 regardless of level of privilege, kids just want to be seen and heard. And if you yes. really tune in, you know, it, it, that's what I always yes. just think of. You tune in, you get wide-eyed, and you listen to what they have to say, they will tell you what they're thinking about. And they'll just, you know, they'll just be loyal to you for life. I mean, they just want to be seen and heard, as I say. And um, 
So, yeah, it's all informative. I mean, I always want to connect with kids, and I had a pen pal writing program for a while between Kenyan kids and U.S. kids because I just, that's really my message in this world is just getting kids' voices out. Right. And maybe it's a great idea as a connector um, with, with some San Francisco kids, too. Maybe that's something that will come out of this. I, I really, I get almost misty-eyed when you talk about, you know, being present and being receptive to kids. I mean, you're, I think what's happening with you, you're, you are becoming wholly present with kids. And you are, you are being receptive to them in a way that sometimes busy people, and we're all, you know, can be accused of that, you know, just sort of project a kind of a more shut down kind of sensory system. And you're tuning in, which is just, you know, a gift. It's a really amazing thing. And I think that, um, you know, one of the other things that you point out in the book, which I loved, very happy to hear about the 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 um, role of Glide Memorial, too, because that's such a cool community-minded um, church. Um, but you also talk about um, Pride Weekend in San Francisco, which I also think, wow, that's a great, um, unique um, trait of San Francisco. That if there's, you know, that, you know, does this create um, more acceptance around, um, you know, attitudes uh, towards same-sex partners? Um, do kids then understand that they can have an influence in terms of rights for same-sex partners? Um, and I think, you know, in addition, you, you went from, you co-founded and volunteered with Youth Rising um, a few years back, an organization that encourages high school students to lead their peers in local political engagement, preparing them as they become eligible to vote. Um, are you aware of this role of cultivating this role as allowing kids to understand that they can become influencers for causes that are important to them? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think so. I mean, that's the thing about kids in urban centers generally is that there is so much cultural opportunity and opportunities for engagement. And I think, um, yes, it's certainly part of my role with, you know, when I was with Youth Rising and anything I've undertaken and all the work I did with Clyde. But I also think it's almost like, I mean, kids are going to catch it if they live in the city it's just part of their experience to be civically engaged and politically engaged and just, you know, in all those day-to-day interactions they have with people and experiences that you just don't get if you're in a small town or a suburb in the same way. Um, I just think they can't help but, you know, and they may choose to get involved or not get involved, but they will certainly be exposed. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, too, about the isolation relatively in the suburbs. I mean, in cities, you know, people, there have been studies. It's great for kids and great for older people because everything's right there. You're, you have much more accessibility and immediacy in cities. And I think, you know, I, I was wondering from reading the book, too, there were so many great ideas from kids. I wondered if it would be... You know, here's a fantasy for me. I wondered if it would be possible for kids to sit down, um, you know, when people, you know, urban planners are thinking about the next area of development, you know, to have actual input into that. What matters to kids? Um, Because, you know, certainly with the question of, well, if, you know, money weren't an issue, 
for kids, they're able to satisfy that because they're not really having such a comprehension of if money wasn't an issue. Maybe setting aside a park, a dog park, a kid's park, you know, some of these things could be really useful for for us in terms of planning. Um, but I, I think the important thing also, you mentioned your, your um, growing up, is, is there, you know, a, a sort of, you know, dichotomy in America between the isolation of the suburbs and the connectivity of the city? Um, you know, do you find that kids are more connected somehow to one another, to culture? Um, what's your feeling about that? We'll wrap up this segment with those thoughts. Yeah, I think so. And what you said about, you know, maybe kids should be sitting in on these, you know, planning meetings um, is so interesting because I I did repeatedly have the experience that kids had amazing ideas and, and one friend who was listening to some of the stories when I was reading them on a writing retreat said, you should send this book to the mayor. I mean, you should, you know, yes. because they just had so many good ideas and, and also just to hear from you know, the ground level, these kids who are, you know, couldn't be closer to the ground, you know, talking about some of the negatives of the city and how many kids are scared by homelessness and many kids find it really dirty and really noisy. And, you know, it's just really interesting to hear their unfiltered view because, you know, it is so unstrategic. They're just talking and they're just giving you real honest perspectives that, I mean, every time someone talked about something they love about the city or something that's challenging for them. It was a view I shared, but it was, it was revealed through them in such a pure unfiltered way. So, yeah, I mean, that I think is really the genius of kids is that they just don't know any better. As you said, they don't have sophistication about money. So they just think, well, why can't it be like this? And I often feel, especially, you know, talking with my nieces and nephews as often as I do, it's like, their ideas and solutions are so simple and it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That's a great idea. Right. And I may think, you know, adults, we bury our emotional reactions in cities, right? We, 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 there's always that, that tension that you feel and the upsetment that you feel when you see homeless persons and you, you know, you wonder why does this have to be? Why, you know, what, what's being done, but we're, you know, we keep, we lose it. And kids kind of retrieve a thread, an emotional thread for us that I think it's so valuable and so valuable in your book. Um, I'm going to say, you know, we've got a, a minute left. I wanted to ask you, are there going to be other urban playgrounds? You're interviewing other kids. Um, what's next for you, Katie Burke? Yes, that is the plan. Um, and I'm sort of going to see how the publicity goes around this book and, and in what direction it takes me. But the idea is that I will focus on one urban center at a time and, you know, go someplace else next. One idea I have is in New York for the next book. But it could be anywhere depending on how and where the book is received. But it is the idea and the plan that there will be urban playground, what kids say about living in Boston, what kids say li- living in Seattle, what kids say about living in Los Angeles. So okay. that is the plan. Great. Well, when we come back, we're going to hear some thoughts um, from Katie Burke on, I think, being present and understanding kids' point of view. Her book is called Urban Playground. They're close to the ground. They're playing, and they're, they have so much off to offer us. Um, don't go away. Come, We'll be back in a minute on Dropping In.
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're dropping in with Katie Burke. She's the author of a book called Urban Playground, What Kids Say About Living in San Francisco. It's just about to hit the market uh, in April 2020. Um, It's available through the Spark Press uh, publishing um, website. And um, we are just in the midst of understanding from Katie this very candid interview process that you went through with 50 kids in, in San Francisco, the results were very candid, very enchanting. They make for incredibly touching reading. Um, there's such a rich imagination. And I'll give you an example. Lily, age five, from the book said um, she was asked by Katie what she wishes her parents knew about her. And she said that I have another world that is magical. She has a rich imagination, Katie observed, where many characters live, and she plays with them and is good friends with them. And her parents may have some idea about her inner world, Lily says, but they don't know the half of it. Um, So I, I think to myself, well, privacy is something that gives kids a sense of autonomy, but also the sense of being accessible and connected with your parent. Um, how do parents create a safe place for kids to express themselves? And Katie, you've done such a magnificent job with this. What would you say to parents in terms of, you know, how to, how to talk to your kids? 
How do I find out about them in their world? I would say always try different kinds of questions. I think one thing that happens with parents that is very different from my experience with kids because I'm consciously thinking of the questions is that parents get into routines and it's sort of, you know, it becomes a little bit routinized, you know, what the questions are, you know, how was school today, that sort of thing. And one experience I had almost invariably, if a parent did listen in on the interview, I always left it to the child and parent or parents, whether they wanted the parent or parents to listen in. And almost invariably, if the, if the parent did listen, at the end of the interview, they would say, I had no idea. I didn't know that my kid even thought that or, you know, they had said something like that to me, but I didn't know they were still thinking about it. And in a couple instances that were just really cute, I would see a parent, you know, kind of in the other room trying to make themselves inconspicuous and doubled over laughing because their kids are so adorable and they'd say something so funny that was really surprising to the parent. So I would just say switching up the questions and even taking time to be thoughtful and intentional about the questions they want to ask their kids. Right. And something um, that's provoking would be something that's novel. Oh, my God, I never heard that question before. You know, and I think this quality of like, who knew? That's that's such an invaluable um, gift that comes from, you know, spontaneously talking to your kid, maybe just about things that don't even like really, quote, make sense. Because one of the kids responded, it was almost like um, this topic of emotional infrastructure, things that he related to in the city was the color orange, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, his orange ice, the place where he got the orange ice, that was an orange store, you know, the color that was reverberating for him. And like, those are things, you know, that's such a, a quick fix. If a parent knew that, you could paint the kid's room orange, you know, you could do, you could have an orange day, you could, you could find out, you know, this is the happy place, the happy color. Um, and I, I just think, wow, you know, so some of these steps are so easily done. And as you say, if you just take a little bit of a step outside the box and, you know, don't ask, well, <laughs> how was school? Boring. You know, I, I really think, wow, you've really, you've really lit, you've really lit on to something um, that helps kids access themselves and also feel their voices are going to be heard and also that they're valued. And this like sense that their parents are really, really interested in them, not in a perfunctory way, not in a performance way, but interested in them as a person. Um, and I think that's that's something where you know you've really um, you've really touched on something here that you know by listening to kids' voices, um, talking about themselves. We go back, we remember what's important. Parents can address kids in a different way. Maybe urban centers can value kids in a different way. Um, And I just think the whole, um, you're at the tip of the iceberg here, Katie. I think you're really on to something with this book. I couldn't be more excited about it coming out next next month. And um, I just wanted to offer you a chance, um, you know, what has happened to Katie Burke as a result of, of writing this book and gathering this information. How has it affected you? You came to San Francisco on a dream. Has it fulfilled that? And what are you finding out about yourself through this interview process that you're engaged with, with Urban, Urban Playground? 
It has. I, I moved to San Francisco in 1999 on the dream of Katie Burke as a 10-year-old child. And, you know, I had no idea why I wanted to live in San Francisco, but I just knew that I did. And it has really shaped me a lot. I mean, one thing in response to what you just said that also leads into this question is we don't have to entirely create the world for our own kids, for the kids in our lives. We can let them shape it for us, too. So in talking to kids from neighborhoods across San Francisco for this book, um, it just was so apparent to me that every child has such a unique experience, and I learned about so many places and and just, as you said, a perfect example with the kid who loves orange, it's like all these different lenses through which we can look at our city. You know, we so often, we just know who we know. And if we're with our colleagues, colleagues tend to all look at it through the same lens. Our friends look at it through this other same lens, you know, and whatever. But talking to all these different kids from so many different experiences did make me see my city differently and just see different parts of the city because I did try to go to them as much as I could to do the interviews. I think it's so cool to have like a new way of seeing almost because of looking through the the eyes of kids. Um, I also, I think what you've just touched on is so um, fascinating. You're, you know, kids, the kids that you interviewed, they're so used to having um, the adult gaze, you know, the, the um, they're being perceived through an adult lens. And rather than kind of like getting down um, and, you know, not pejoratively, but getting onto the level, being present with kids, what that does in terms of uh, exploration of an inner world, um, removing the lens of being an adult and just being open to whatever a kid says. Um, I wonder if that's, that's happened to you as a result of this experience. Right. I mean, I've always done it. And because I'm not a parent, I'm not um, susceptible to the trappings of all the competition in this world and in this city in particular, where there is a reason to have structure. And it makes sense to be thinking years ahead of time about where your kid's going to go to kindergarten and, and those kinds of things. So I certainly understand living in this city as long as I have and knowing as many parents as I have why people need the structure that they need to impose on their kids. And, um, and what I would say to that is just to be able to leave a little bit of room. I mean, it can't be a totally unstructured, you know, it can't literally be an urban playground, but to, you know, just find a little bit of balance and open those opportunities for kids to say, here's what I want to do today. And if it's something like if they want to go to Target, you know, if they want to do whatever, it's like, sure, you know, let them lead the activity because I think we can trust that, they're, if we value them and we show them that we honor their choices, they are going to land in the place that we're hoping they'll land, you know, with the structure that we're also simultaneously providing. And I think that um, cultivating individuality, right, then it kind of that voice, that empowerment, it refutes the herd mentality. It refutes so many of the given mentalities in our culture, of, you know, celebrity culture and, and, and ways of being able to look at yourself as a unique entity. I think, wow, that, you know, it's something you can't teach in school. That's something that comes experientially from treating a child a certain way. And it's something we very much need. Um, and I also was fascinated by the answers in this book, uh, Urban Playground, that, you know, so little of it had to do with, I want to sit with my, um, my device, 
my personal device and be uh, in front of a computer screen. All of the answers related to being with family, being outdoors, playing, um, being interactive. I thought that was so heartening um, as a kind of thrust of like kids are still interested in very basic connectivity. Um, I was really heartened by that. And um, maybe you felt the same way. I did. And I think for the most part, if kids said, if I asked them, you know, do you want to be in San Francisco when you grow up or do you want to live elsewhere? I think for the most part, they answered that if they wanted to stay here, it was because they wanted to continue living where their families lived. And in some cases, in the same house with their parents forever and ever. I thought that was great. I mean, again, who knew? I mean, I think you make, there's Mm -hmm. certain presumptions that we make and, you know, kids maybe, you know, we're coping with a lot these days. And I feel like, you know, that family embrace, it was obviously very, very meaningful to these kids. And I think you had a great cross section. There was a lot of, you know, um, connectivity, even in families that were now uh, had, you know, split apart and, you know, were, you know, woven back together on weekends. And um, I think that 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 sense of needing to be loved, loving, needing to be loved, needing to be heard, those are things that I think we lose sight of in in all of this idea of of screen time, um, PlayStations, um, you know, as you mentioned, competition, there's a lot of good reason for all of it. But I think that, you know, you've you've really looked, at you, you've created a shape-shifting kind of concept of kids um, that I think really going forward will really be helpful to all of us. How does it inform your day-to-day life as um, a family counselor? I mean, in, in law, um, practicing in family law, we have just a couple minutes left, but I'd love to hear, you know, I'd love to hear about what people do in their day jobs and you've gone off on this fascinating tangent. Does it, you know, inform your work? I think so. I mean, I've always had a very child-centered practice and um, for the most part in my practice, I'm only talking to one parent or another in a divorce, uh, but I, you know, am known, I think, for refusing to take a stance that is anything other than child-centered um, and, and the court requires that anyway, but I take it very seriously. Um, and today, for example, I'm doing the second part of a two-part training in Marin at the courthouse to be on their minors council panel, actually representing kids in their parents' divorces, which I had done years and years ago in San Francisco when the San Francisco city and county had a budget for the family law court to appoint minors council attorneys. And um, they don't have that budget anymore, but apparently Marin does. So I'm really looking forward to getting back into that work because I'll be interviewing kids in a different way and for a different reason, of course. Good. And in the meantime, they have the platform of Urban Playground. We've got to go now, but it's been delightful talking with you. And I feel as though this is an author we really want to hear more from. She believes in letting children's voices be heard and hearing their messages. Thanks so much for dropping in with us today with Katie Burke. Thank you, Diane. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.